low carbohydrate diets are certainly on trend today. And it is for diabetes that such diets have attracted a lot of attention. Low carbohydrate diets have without question helped many people with diabetes keep their blood sugar levels more stable and even for some people with type 2 diabetes help to even fully resolve their diabetes. In today's podcast, I look at the history of dietary recommendations for diabetes. I'll then look at what the scientific evidence says for how effective low-carbohydrate diets are for diabetes compared to other approaches. Welcome to the Thinking Nutrition Podcast. My name is Tim Crow, and I'm a career researcher, educator, and science communicator with most of this spent in the field of nutrition. How do you make sense of so much conflicting information in the field of nutrition? Well, I don't profess to have all the answers in an area that is continually changing as research changes, you can count on what is covered in this podcast to be based on the whole field of nutrition science, not just selective areas that support a particular way of thinking. And this podcast will always be free from any commercial product tie-ins, endorsements, or advertisements. Just credible nutrition science presented in plain and simple language, and then translating this into what it means for your health. So, on with today's show. Diabetes is a major public health problem, with type 2 diabetes being by far the most common form of diabetes and is leading the worldwide explosion in this disease. There is much we know about how type 2 diabetes can be prevented by lifestyle changes that focus on modest weight loss, eating more foods high in fiber, eating fewer foods high in saturated fat, and getting more active. What is less clear, though, is what type of dietary pattern is optimal for controlling blood sugar levels in someone already with type 2 diabetes. Now, if you look at the history of broad dietary recommendations for the management of diabetes, it evolved from near-starvation type, very low-carbohydrate diets before the era of the 1920s, when insulin was first isolated from the pancreas of animals and could be used to treat humans. In the subsequent 100 years since, recommendations have changed from first low-carbohydrate diets in the 1920s to more moderate carbohydrate diets in the 1950s to more high-carbohydrate and lower-fat diets in the 1970s, primarily because of heart disease concerns. And now, in the present day, in fact, we have recommendations closer in line with dietary guidelines, but with a clear focus on individualization. In fact, individualized as a word was mentioned 20 times in the 2014 recommendations for the management of adults with diabetes from the American Diabetes Association. Compare that to just four mentions of this word individualized in their prior 2008 position statement. What this should tell you is that recommendations evolve and change as research changes, as it should, which leads us into perhaps what I could call a heated debate 
in the world of diabetes management, led by some very loud social media voices and the odd celebrity doctor or two that argue that low-carbohydrate diets, again, should be the primary dietary approach to managing diabetes. Well, this is certainly one area that has amassed quite a lot of research behind it. And if you just look at more short-term studies, up to about three months in duration, there does seem to be an additional benefit to such low-carb diets in managing blood sugars. But the best way to look at the research is to collate all of it together and to study it over longer time frames to see if benefits are sustained. And that brings me to a just-published meta-analysis of randomized controlled trials of using a low-carbohydrate diet or different variations of that in people with type 2 diabetes. And I'll link to this study in the show notes. So let's dig deeper into this analysis as there is a lot to unpack. To start with, 37 randomized controlled trials that ran for a minimum of three months were included. Randomized controlled trials are the best types of studies to use as it washes out most of the inherent differences between people. And that happens because you randomly assign them to either follow one diet or another. Now, 37 studies, that's a lot that made the grade for the review. And each one compared a low-carbohydrate diet, which the definition of vary between studies, so more on that later, against a standard comparator diet that would normally be recommended for diabetes. At a minimum, a low-carbohydrate diet had to be one that had less than 45% of the energy coming from carbohydrates. The average carbohydrate content, though, of low-carbohydrate diets in the study came in at the 36% mark for energy coming from carbohydrates, while the comparison diets averaged around 49% of the energy coming from carbohydrates. The key outcome they were interested in was the blood marker of long-term glucose control called hemoglobin A1c, or HbA1c. Now, this is an indicator of blood sugar levels over the long term, rather than just normal day-to-day and meal-to-meal fluctuations that everybody sees in their blood sugar. They also looked at a range of other things, like changes in body mass index, blood lipids, and measures of how well the kidneys were working. Now, what counts as a low-carbohydrate diet has no clear definition, but there is some agreement that once you get below 26% of the energy in the diet coming from carbohydrates or less than a maximum of 130 grams of carbohydrates per day coming from carbohydrates, you are in the realm of a very low-carbohydrate diet, which is sort of different from a broad low-carb diet. And for reference, A true ketogenic diet is one that would have less than about 50 grams of carbohydrates per day. So let's get back to the analysis. What did they find? Well, low-carbohydrate diets did improve glycemic control and body mass index in the shorter term, but their benefits diminished in the longer term. At three months, HbA1c levels were lower by a very small 0.17 percentage points on average, which is debatable if that is clinically significant, even though it was statistically significant. 
And by when you got to six months and even 12 months, there was no difference in HbA1c levels between those assigned to follow a low-carbohydrate diet and those in the comparison control diet group. And very surprisingly, when you looked at the six studies that ran for two years, those who were allocated to follow a lower-carbohydrate diet actually had worse glucose control, with the HbA1c levels 0.23 percentage points higher. So not really wonderful results for a greatly superior benefit for low-carbohydrate diets. But, but most of those diets weren't really low-carb, I hear you say. At least some of those on social media who are just a little too wedded to seeing the world through the lens of a low-carb diet, as some amazing cure-all have said. While the researchers did indeed look at diets that were considered very low-carbohydrate. So these were diets that contained less than 26% of total energy from carbohydrates or had less than 130 grams of carbohydrates each day. So what happens or what happened when you just look at these studies? They did fare slightly better in showing greater reductions in HbA1c by an average of about 0.4 percentage points at both three and six months, which is clinically meaningful, but hardly a reversal of diabetes as those promising the amazing benefits of low-carb diets often proclaim. But here's the thing. When you look at longer timeframes of one and two years, all of that benefit disappeared. It is simply too hard to maintain the dietary changes needed for this diet. And if it can't be maintained, then it can't be considered a superior option. And remember, this was a clinical trial where motivated volunteers chose to take part and got ongoing help and advice to support them throughout the trial. This is more of a best case situation and real world results would be less. Very low carbohydrate diets did have a stronger effect on body mass index than simply low carbohydrate diets. But just like its effect on HbA1c, any body weight benefit disappeared in the longer term. And I would argue that most of the greater benefits seen in very low carbohydrate diets on HbA1c levels seen in the diabetes trials were because of the additional weight loss in the short term, not because of any direct effect of the low-carb diet on blood sugar levels. Now, here is where I need to make an important distinction between the terms efficacy and effectiveness. So I'm going to nerd this up just a little bit more. I've also seen comments that real-world analysis should only be made on people that actually stuck to the low-carb diets in the trials to make meaningful conclusions. So here, we're talking about efficacy, and that means how well something performs under ideal and controlled circumstances, whereas effectiveness refers to its performance under real-world conditions, which is what the study was interested in. It's possible that excluding participants with poor adherence to a low-carb diet would result in more favorable outcomes for the low-carbohydrate diet group. But this would yield results for ideal and unrealistic circumstances and introduce bias into the analysis. 
A low-carbohydrate diet may have greater efficacy in the short term in a clinical trial situation, but under real-world conditions, it is no more effective than other types of approaches. But I want to make the huge disclaimer. All these clinical trials were the average of all of the participants. Some people did really well on low-carbohydrate diets, while others did really poorly. It is appropriate to look at averages when you are considering broad dietary advice for populations. But at present, as we have no way of predicting who will do well and not so well on a low-carbohydrate diet, then just because some people did really well on the diet doesn't mean everyone should be following the diet, because we know that some people did really poorly on these diets too. So the takeaway from this study is that the reality far exceeds the hype when it comes to low-carbohydrate diets, but they can have a place in managing diabetes. And this is where I'll call back to my initial comments around how individualization of diet and lifestyle advice is important. And it's where it's worth seeing a dietitian for this rather than getting your diet advice from low-carb diet zealots on social media and celebrity doctors. So just to finish off, to put this analysis into perspective, as its focus was just on low-carbohydrate diets, there have now been many clinical trials looking at different dietary approaches to managing type 2 diabetes. And these include, of course, low-carb diets, vegetarian diets, vegan diets, low-glycemic index diets, high-fiber diets, high-protein diets, and Mediterranean-style diets. These different dietary approaches do not exist in isolation, and there is a large degree of commonality between them. For someone with diabetes, it can be confusing to work out what is the best way to eat with so much conflicting information. So scientists have evaluated the different dietary approaches to see what type of pattern appears to be the most effective, and this was published in a meta-analysis, which I'll link to in the show notes. From a review of 20 randomized clinical trials, the four dietary patterns that appeared to offer the most benefit were a low-carbohydrate diet, a low-glycemic index diet, a Mediterranean diet, and a high-protein diet. And they all showed improvements in HbA1c levels. But the one that showed the greatest effect overall was the Mediterranean diet. This is hardly surprising, considering the wealth of research showing that a Mediterranean-style dietary pattern has many positive health benefits. The defining characteristic of a Mediterranean diet is that it includes plenty of olive oil, legumes, unrefined cereals, fruits, and vegetables, as well as fish, moderate consumption of dairy products, mostly cheese and yogurt, and wine, and also a low consumption of meat and meat products. This is the type of dietary pattern that is one that can be recommended to be followed long term and is one that has a wealth of positive health outcomes linked to it. The same cannot be said for low-carbohydrate diets. The results from this review of dietary patterns for type 2 diabetes are not to be taken as an endorsement for one particular approach that should be followed by everyone. Even the authors of this study were quick to acknowledge that dietary behaviors and choices 
are personal. So dietary recommendations should be individualized. There's that word again. Rather than use a one-size-fits-all approach. Take some of the key themes of eating a mostly plant-based diet that's high in fiber and low in highly processed foods as a guideline that all people with type 2 diabetes can work towards. So that's it for today's show. You can find the show notes either in the app you're listening to this podcast on if it supports it, or else head over to my webpage at thinkingnutrition.com.au and click on the podcast section to find this episode to read the show notes. If you find this podcast of value, then please consider sharing it with your friends and colleagues, or maybe even leave a review. This all helps increase the ranking and reach of the podcast, which means a big win for credible, evidence-based nutrition messages while helping to dilute out the crazy and making the world a slightly less confusing place. I'm Tim Crow, and you've been listening to Thinking Nutrition. Thank you.